welcome to another Richard Jones Square Theatre podcast. Uh, this week's guest is Catelyn Moran. It's a really good one. I am on tour in 2017. There's a couple of dates in 2016, but the bulk of it's between February and May 2017. I'm doing a show called The Best. It's 90 minutes of what I consider to be my best stand-up. Um, so if you're new to me and would like to see my funniest stuff, or if you would like to reminisce about the old shows, or if you'd like to bring along a friend who says I'm rubbish, then say, well, come and see this. And then if they still think I'm rubbish at the end of it, then I'm, I'm, it's not going to work out for them. But, you know, it's 90 minutes of their life and they can decide whether I'm worth persisting with. Uh, if you go to richterring.com slash the underscore best slash tour or richterring.com slash gigs or just go to richterring.com and click on the um, front page and you can get to all the tour dates. I'm coming loads of places in the UK. Uh, Leicester Square Theatre in February in London. Uh, and then all over the place, and some new ones have been added quite recently, so do go and check out and buy some tickets. It's the perfect Christmas gift for all the family, apart from probably people under 15, or very old, racist, unpleasant people who who like puns. Okay, thanks for listening. See, hope you enjoyed this podcast. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, is it working? Yeah. Good. <laughs> Don't patronise me. <laughs> welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who has just spent uh, half an hour talking to a 125-year-old man, and that is true. It's Richard Herring. <laughs> this one working. Is it working? That's good. Hello. Uh, welcome to uh, the Rich Herring's Leicester Square Theatre podcast. Um, I was uh, in I was in uh, Xanadu with. Uh, <laughs> Olivia Newton-John uh, the other day. Uh, she had all those kind of uh, that thing around her head that's cool. Uh, she called it uh, Lester Bus. I don't know if that's, oh, that's, that seems to be catching on. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've been doing one of my uh, Kickstarter. I think you're going to hear a bit about Kickstarters tonight, uh, but uh, I've been doing one of my Kickstarter awards before you all came in, which was to have a half an hour interview uh, with... If there's anyone who's really terrified of... Uh, <laughs> horrific puppets that look like they'll come alive. <laughs> look away now. Uh, I've just done a... Uh, <laughs> this is uh, Ali. Don't go uh, him like that. Hello, it's me, Ali. Look, see, he's like a real person. Can speak on his own. Doesn't even need a microphone. No, I don't need a microphone. It's fine. I've got a, I've got a, a lapel mic on. Uh, good. Uh, so, uh, this is the ventriloquist uh, dummy that um, Stuart Lee used to... <laughs> There we re. And look, Stuart Lee modelled his hair on that in the 1990s. That is, that's the just a rub in. Uh... So I thought Ali, I, I might get, I might bring him in every week because he can. I think Ali can ask questions that I would be too, too ashamed to ask. So we'll see how that goes. But he's here for now, uh, and he's yeah, he's from. Uh, He's from 1892, that's where he when, when he was created, so that's exciting, isn't it? Uh, so anyway, look, we, uh, we uh, haven't got all that long with the first guest, not as long as usual, so I will crack straight on. Uh, so you, you back in the box? Oh, I don't want to go in the box. Well, you're in the box, so... <laughs> it's my great-granddad made him, and then my granddad had him, and then passed it down to me. My great-granddad was a Methodist minister and used him to t teach parables and stuff. I use him to make jokes about being wanked up, well, you know, like to... to <laughs> to reveal true life stories. So anyway, my, um, my guest tonight is probably best known from being a guest on Pagina 2, or Pagina 2, I don't know how you pronounce it. 
like vagina with a P. Uh, but she was also on Sunday brunch in 2012. That's where you may, that's probably where you'll recognise her from. Will you please welcome Catelyn Moran, ladies and gentlemen. It's come. Catelyn Moran. Beautiful. Thank you very much. I hope you don't mind this box of uh, Victorian toys between us. Yeah, I'm kind of curious to see it now. I've heard the build-up. There's two, actually, so I can show that's uh, That's Ali. Oh, Christ. <laughs> actually, I've been in a similar situation. I once spent an hour and a half trying to interview Marky e. Smith from the fall. It wasn't, wasn't entirely visually dissimilar. This is, uh, this is Sally, who I think is actually more scary. I mean, I did look a lot like that when I was 18, to be fair. That was very much the hairstyle I had. Like, a lot of her teeth have come out. I just noticed today when I was talking to her today, I think like, that's my fault. I was meant to look after these, and my granddad gave them to me. Uh, but they are very old. They're very old. There's some newspaper in This is some newspaper that was inside them. From, that's from 1892. I hope it just says war. <laughs> I just presume all old newspapers say war declared. That's. I think they were done. If there was the, the Boer War was what around. What is this? Them, I know it's got a little list of things that you can buy. Apparently they had a special of on chlorate of potash. That was yeah. one shilling. Seems quite reasonable. I don't know what potash is now. Borax, soda bicarb, soda mint. This is good shit, man. <laughs> I'm like, this is my new shopping list. Fantastic. What, what was Pagina or Pagina 2? Do you remember being on that? I don't know. I think it was I mean, like a talk, talk show in Spain or something. Christ, I don't remember that at no. all. I, I, I remember doing a talk show that was, that was feminism in the early 90s, and it was me, Jermaine Greer, Suzanne Moore, and Miranda Sawyer. Right. And we were all around a riding table. And because it was about feminism, it might as well have been called Vagina 2. <laughs> and, and there was a bottle in the centre of the table, and it was the days when you could smoke fags as well, so I was immediately tabbing away because I was very nervous and 18. And everybody was pouring themselves drinks from this decanter. And I'd never come across sherry before. Um, I, just, I just thought you could drink it like wine, so I was drinking like half pints of, of sherry, <laughs> knocking it back like a beast um, and smoking fags at the same time and all the way through I was the only one who was smoking and towards the end everybody started talking about their mothers and got really emotional and as they started talking about their mothers you saw every single woman's hand shoot to the centre of the table take fags out of my packet and everyone just started smoking again my bloody mother my bloody mother and that's feminism <laughs> that's what it's, it's the mothers that make you feminist that's what happens absolutely that's yes I, as, as is my understanding of feminism <laughs> uh, yeah Richard could you take your box off the table why it's obscuring the view apparently. okay oh. The amount of times I've been told to take my box off the table. There's uh, so many dinner parties. Uh, how's that? Is that all right for you? Is that obscure? Is it like what's? Is is it the crotch shot that we uh, <laughs> that you're worried about? <laughs> uh, good. Uh, so. Um, yeah, it's great to have you. Well, you know, we'll talk about the Kickstarter straight away because you're, you're kickstarting uh, Raised by Wolves, which is your yes. two, you did two series on Channel 4. Yes. Of your sitcom and basically sort of about your family, I would imagine fairly strongly, although yeah, set in the present day. Yeah, yeah. So I was the eldest of eight children. We were home educated in a council house in Wolverhampton by parents who believed that the apocalypse was going to happen quite soon. Um, and, you know, when you live through it, it's quite traumatic. But 20 years later, you think, I could make a show out of this. So, <laughs> so I wrote the show with my sister. It went very well. Well, we won lots of awards and stuff, and then, as is often the way of things, it, it wasn't it wasn't refreshed. I think it's the the uh, the, uh, the the option wasn't refreshed for <laughs> yeah. a third season. So so we sort of announced it on Twitter and kind of went, oh well, that's it. Off. I've, I've been working on this idea of doing a musical about the life of Bill Murray for like the last five years. So I was like, great, <laughs> just don't need to write the sitcom anymore. Time for the Bill Murray musical, um, which I can tell you all. I mean, literally yeah. tell you scene by scene about the whole thing. <laughs> if anybody wants, it. it's called Billennium. Okay, and the idea is. <laughs> You know when they were going to have the Millennium Bug and they didn't know what was going to happen, but they thought it was going to be awful. So we, we joined Bill Murray on the 
the evening, New Year's Eve, 1999. We don't know what's going to happen with the Millennium Bug. And it gets to midnight and nothing seems to be happening. He's just in the bathroom looking in the mirror, kind of, hey, well, nothing happened there. But obviously he'll improvise something funnier because that's the great thing about working with, with Bill Murray. You don't have to write a script. He just does it himself. Um, and then he goes back out into the party and looks around the room and, oh, my God, everyone in the world has turned into Bill Murray. This is what the Millennium Bug is. I haven't really got much further than that, but I just like the idea of a world filled with Bill Murray's, and we've got to make it soon because he's going to die. So I was like, I can get on with that. But, um, you don't but, know anything specifically that's going to kill him. Just no, he seems fairly healthy yeah, and hale. Um, but you know, at some point, Father Time will call him, call him back to his breast. So, um, so I was like, I'll work on Billennium instead. But then we, we sort of talked about it um, on Twitter, and loads of people were going, No, it's 2016. Loads of people love your show. Why don't you crowdfund it? So we went, oh, Okay, let's let's do a Kickstarter. Let's crowdfund yeah. it. Oh my God! It's knackering doing a crowdfunder, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's very difficult. Well, it's like as we were saying backstage. It's it's. The, I've done a few and not quite as ambitious as yours. I did one for me, one versus me two snooker, which was more ambitious. Where I tried to raise a million pounds to play my to play myself at snooker in my basement. I got to one hundred and six thousand. But I think the people who were donating £5,000 knew their money was quite safe. So they, uh, And some of them are like Andy McH, I think. They put £5,000 in and then got a call from the fraud squad. Because they still check you've got the funds in your account and thought you were trying to... Which is quite a good thing. Yeah, we, you got your card stopped. So that, the joke was on you. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so it's quite, it's quite an ambitious target. But it's, it, that's the, I think you'll make it. Because I, Thank you. Because I think the, looking at the shape of it... But it's annoying because people in the middle, they stop doing it. Yes. And then why don't they just give you the money now and stop you so you're not having a heart attack for a month? I know. It, ma- it does make you turn into a really unpleasant person. Yeah. You, are ask- <laughs> you are essentially asking people for money. And, and when they don't, you get angry. And that's, and that's, that's an unreasonable response from a very weak human being. But, um, but, but, you know, the idea is if people want us to make more, then if you pay us up front rather than buying the DVD at the end, we'll make more. If not, billennium is go. Like, kind of, like, <laughs> well, all my options are open. That so good. <laughs> people are going to start taking their money out and putting it into... Well, so long billennium. as people understand Billennium so far, I've only got the first seven minutes. After that, <laughs> I would have to crowdfund ideas. But it's a strong seven-minute opener. Well, it's, but it shows how much uh, TV costs. So, like, yeah. 350 grand is, is sort of about how much a... a a regular TV show. It is costs. extraordinary how much TV yeah. costs, and then you realise when you go onto the set of something, like when we were filming ours, that like kind of it is like a small army of people. You are empo- employing a small village, and they are also incredible people. Whenever I used to watch people doing kind of acceptance speeches when they'd won awards, and they were going, "Of course, it's the cast and crew. You're like family. You guys make miracles happen every day." And you're like, "I don't think they did. Like kind of, I think they just did some catering. Kind of, you're you're really over egging that." But when you've been on on the set of a TV show, I mean, you you, you hear the stories from the production people and the runners. Like you know, when you get production uh, 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 assistant just talking about how they were filming in mountains in Transylvania and had to get gluten-free muffins for Tom Cruise and plus <laughs> smuggle his dog into the country. You think, my God, if they put a production manager in charge of any war or conflict in the world, they could sort the whole thing out in 20 minutes flat. Like, these are super organised people. Yeah. So yeah. those are the people that we want to employ. And plus, we're, you know, I basically won my career in a competition. I entered the Observer Young Reporter of the Year competition when I was 15. Because if you live on a council estate in Wolverhampton, it doesn't occur to you that you could come to London and have these exciting jobs. So you kind of need to be invited. So we're doing these uh, paid internships so that people can come and work on the show in production. We're going to do writing workshops so that people who come from a similar background as us can have a hand sort of put out to them and go, come and join us. This could be fun. Yeah. Come and do a series, two series for a major broadcaster and then have to kickstart it for the third. <laughs> uh, that's the kind of job I want to invite you to. I mean, 
there's lots of interesting things about about this. I mean, a that this, the series cancelled and then you won the Palm Door. Yes, I know. Which is be quite <laughs> satisfying. <laughs> and then, oh, it did. Yes, it's, it was you know, very it's a big deal. And it's, I mean, it, you know, t- TV com- you know, the broadcasters have to make decisions and they've got to bring in new shows and there's all yeah. sorts of things to consider. Yeah. Well, you have to um, be noble. I mean, it's like being dumped basically. Yeah. You can't like turn up at Channel 4's doorstep and just cry through their letterbox, drunk in your underwear, going, "Take me back! <laughs> Why did you drop me?" Because after the first two days, they do move you on. Yeah. That is <laughs> inadvisable. It's hard to get more than two. I, for a long time, I never had more than two series of anything. I've got on. Um, this is the tenth series of this, but only because I decide whether it comes back again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, up to an extent, you. Uh, in terms, of if you if you don't turn up, I probably would stop it. If there was literally no one here and no guest, I probably wouldn't do it. Would you though? But though, having said that, I yeah. did just talk to Ventrilo's dummy for half an hour on my own. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows what would happen? But I mean, I, I think what's quite interesting about TV sitcoms is that a lot of they're bringing in lots of people from different areas that don't usually write sitcoms. I think, and there a lot of them are uh, women. So yes. there's a uh, Fleabag yeah. and oh, there's God, uh, Chewing Gum. Amazing? Yes, and they've both come through a sort of theatrical background. Yes, and you've come to write a sitcom through like a journalism, journalism and back. just generally being around and having a yeah. huge face. Yeah, no. Well, well this, is, well, this is the great thing. It's funny because I mean, you know, as a feminist and uh, you know, and someone who writes about politics a lot, you spend a lot of your time talking about diversity. And diversity sounds like an incredibly boring word, but the whole thing about diversity, it's not like it's not like a noble luxury that we can sort of you know, indulge in if we feel like we're doing everything else. It's just more business. It's just more stories. It's just more fun. Yeah. You know, you just don't want to hear the same stories over and over again. I can't be the only one who sits watching most TV and you can kind of guess what's going to happen next. Sure. Um, so, you know, that, that's that's the whole idea about having, you know, people from... And also people who've never written before come up with crazy ideas. Yeah. Like, kind of, the amount of times that we made people very terrified when we were making Raised by Wolves. For instance, in one episode, uh, Jermaine, the 16-year-old, who is overweight and sex-obsessed and, and bumptious and joyful, um, has uh, reacts to the death of her grandmother by deciding that she will discover masturbation and basically wank away the pain and we decided that she would be doing this when in the TV in the corner of the room question time was on and because that music gets kind of ding 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 I mean it builds it's kind of you know it is called it a masturbatory aid and so so we, we joyfully write this scene and then the producers go, yeah, but you're going to have to get permission from Jonathan Dimbleby because it will end on a close-up of his face and like, we can't... That's just wrong. He will have to get his permission. So I, I sort of know his son vaguely through Twitter, so I just had to send him a letter to give to his dad. I said, can you give this letter to your dad? Which said, this is a bit weird, but we've written a sitcom where a 16-year-old girl wanks to the question time theme tune and it ends on your face. And... Um, <laughs> And two days later, he just opened this book going, oh, that's absolutely delightful. Absolutely, of course. That would be wonderful. And similarly, we had, it's, it's, um, it's a family that is obsessed with cheap food, because that's what you're obsessed with, and you're poor, it's one of your few joys. And so they eat a lot of cheese, and they've come up with a song called Cheese on Cheese, yeah. which is where they've repurposed, repurposed Girls on Film by Duran Duran. So the lyrics now aren't about sexy models, but it's about cheese on cheese, I'm making a sandwich, cheese on cheese, with cheddar and Leicester, um, because it's a cheese on cheese sandwich. It's cheese and then cheese and then cheese. There's no bread, it's just pure cheese. Um, and again, they were like, this is a great song, we're all singing it in the office, but you will have to get permission from Simon Le Bon from Duran, Duran to do this. And again, luckily I know him through Twitter, so I was like, hello Simon, this is a bit of a weird thing, but, but can we take your song about sexy ladies and make it about very cheap cheese? To which he replied, yes, that's brilliant, hey, up the Midlands, hurrah and hooray. It was very jolly and not new romantic about the whole thing. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but, but it's sort of interesting, I think, to see, well, it's exactly that, it's because I think in the past, 
I think sitcoms, you know, a lot of sitcoms that get commissioned are that very formulaic thing. Yes. And oh, and things by, happened in the and, hall. And they're yes. written by the same kind of people. Yes. So I think it's very exciting that, A, like, I think you've, you've made this point, but certainly in America, so many, so much of the new comedy stuff is being written by women that it's almost like, where are the men now? I know. I feel sorry of men, <laughs> yeah. kind of like, yeah. But it's, it's amazing how many of them are working with Judd Apatow as well. I, yeah. just, I presume that he just stands by the toilets, the ladies' toilets of the Golden Globes, and just anyone who's going in, like, want to make a film with me? He's kind of like, you know, get Schumer gets Faye, everyone. No, so it's, it's but it, that is, you know, it's very interesting. I think the the other two that have come from a theatrical background, they're really, um, you know, they stand out amazing, just so different. Yes, Fleabag's uh, but this, incredible. This is, but this is, yeah, Fleabag's great, but this is as well because it's, I guess it's, you know, aside from Mrs. Brown's Boys, which I'm not sure is that accurate a portrayal of working class life. <laughs> Times. <laughs> Times it is. I did find my dad in a dress in the front room, but talking in an Irish accent. But that was just simply a good night in the pub. Yeah, but there aren't many. You know, there aren't many sitcoms about um, a, a fam- well, family. Fam- your family is a very unusual family yes. from Wolverhampton, and, and but it's it's that working class thing, and they're not they're not trying to scam the well, state yeah. and steal not being a shameless just, thing. Yeah, like, well, I mean, people, well, this is the thing, kind of like the you know, sort of the depiction of the working classes is generally around them being kind of almost like kind of dangerous kind of exciting animals and they're always just having sex in an alleyway or dealing drugs or setting fire to cars or kind of like saying things in slightly impenetrable slang and it's like there's a bit more to being working class than that but but, you know first of all we've forgotten about the aspirational working classes that post-war thing of you know educating yourself you go to the library you you know you you take care of things you have conversations about culture you're engaged you know this is one of the problems that I had with Benefit Street it was all just about survival and yes you know when you're very poor that is you know a key thing that's you know that's the plots of your day is trying to work out how you're going to get you know for instance your washing machine breaks down you can't mend it you, you've got a cousin who's got a spare washing machine but they're on the other side of town and you've got to work how you're going to bring a washing machine from Cannock to Wolverhampton on a bus like kind of that's you know it's practical yeah. everyday things that you're having to do but at the same time you know the you know things like benefit streets you never see people talking about anything other than survival it's almost like you're reduced to a body you're reduced yeah. to a problem You'd, no one's allowed to be silly or surreal or fanciful or whimsical um, so you know that was very much what we wanted to put in there so you know there are intellectual bohemian working class people People. Yeah. It's kind of it, you know. And the, well, they're really excellent characters. The mother character is amazing. So it's this, you know, attempting to. Well, <laughs> there's six kids, are there in the, in the fictional family? We were never sure. Kind of. <laughs> At one point, we wanted all the children to be played by puppets instead. We were just like, they should just be a mass. That's what little children are like, yeah. just little muppets. They're yeah. just called the babbies in yeah. the titles, which I like. Uh, but she's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great portrayal of someone just know they've got to get on with their life. They've got this impossible life. Yes. Because they're a single parent with six kids, and, and she's getting on with it, and she's. It, there's just a great focus of that character. It's an well, amazing she's, character. Well, she's, we'd written her very differently, and then this is, you know, this is where you start realizing actors are kind of amazing because we'd written her as quite uptight with kind of GHD'd head and stuff and kind of very particular about how her cushions were arranged on the sofa. And uh, and Rebecca Staten turned up and she went, I don't want to name drop, but I do. I've just come off set with Clint Eastwood and I want to play this mother like Clint Eastwood. I want to play her like the lone cowboy in town, kind yeah. of like, like a superhero, just kind of a preacher man. And we were like, yeah, that is what single mothers are. You know, you are yeah. a freaking superhero. And, you know, so then we wrote it like Ripley from Alien, uh, you know, kind of, she's very Sarah Connor in Terminator, but on a council estate. And yeah. that is basically, and I found it was amazing writing a character like that because, it, you know, she didn't inspire us to write her like that because I now parent like this fictional mother <laughs> right. that I wrote. It's kind of, you know, to but the point where my children get very annoyed. There's an element of that with it. What, whatever, however many kids you've got and however easy your life is as a parent, there is this, it becomes about your family's your focus and you just have to get on with it. You yes. Know, your, your life has changed. 
irreversibly. And, and, and no, for the worse in no, many yeah. ways, yeah. yeah there's no and, and, but, I mean, part of the joy of that is kind of, you know, you're kind of this feeling that you can't... I mean, you know, if, if you like being funny and that's your way of getting through life, kind yeah. of, you know, the thing that Della can just do these brilliant speeches, you know, you just get to rant, kind of like, yeah, OK, you're going to have to do some parenting at some point, but before you do, you're going to let the kids know how much you resent it. <laughs> yeah, and I really enjoy writing those speeches. They are from the heart. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think what's most interesting about it is you write with your sister Caroline. Yes. And the two central characters are clearly very much based, based on you. Based on us, you, yes. And, and they're quite different yes. people. So it must be very hard for those two people to write a sitcom together, well, even if they weren't sisters. But, you know, they're very different... Well, for those who haven't seen it, the, the two main characters, there's one overweight brunette who's very egg-confident, very extrovert, never stops fucking talking, is obsessed with Benedict Cumberbatch and wanking. And then there's another character who's a ginger, introvert, uptight, Marxist, obsessed with George Orwell, who hates the brunette. And I'll leave you to guess which one is me and which one is my sister. But it was, yeah, no, it, was, it was very interesting writing together. Kind of, when we first started coming up with the characters, I was like, I think Jermaine should be this kind of like, yeah, you know, she, you know, she's, she's, she, you know she's bumptious and she's sepsis. But I think she should be noble. I think maybe she should be talking about politics. She should be this kind of great guy, like really inspiring and noble and incredible. And just a really inspiring and noble and really great. And my sister just went, yeah. Or she could be a dick. <laughs> And we argued about that for many hours, and, yeah. and many, many times I would just find myself shouting, I'm going to tell mum about this, but that doesn't really cut it in a writing partnership, and Jermaine just ended up being a dick. <laughs> Whereas the ginger one continues to be really noble, have much better plots, uh, and much better hair, so I, I sort of, you can see the power struggle is acted out on screen, definitely. But again, I, mean, I think any family, any well-written family sitcom is going to be great, because you you know, we all have that relationship with people in our family, however it is, however yes. different the families are. Yes. So that's an instantly recognised you know, competition between the two oldest kids. Well, it's the perfect are, cage, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you are all stuck together. And again, particularly if there's a lot of children, you're very poor and you're in a very small house. Like, yeah. you literally can't go away from each other. And there's this weird thing, kind of, you only get it in sibling relationships where you sometimes really want a sibling to punch you. You will just keep going up into a child, you know, just into a sibling's face and just touching it and just touching it. We, my sister used to do this thing that would drive me crazy where she would go, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. Yeah, but I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And you'd be going, Mom, Mom, Mom. She went, I'm, not I'm not actually touching you, though. Look, I'm not touching you for two hours. And that, but she, and she wanted me to punch her. And there's, sometimes you just want to wrestle with a sibling. Sometimes yeah. you would... And, you know, we didn't have television in those days and the internet hadn't been invented, so we invented many games. And also we were, you know, we were home educators, so we were quite stupid in many ways. So for some reason we thought that your vagina was called your navel. And... So when Sarah Ferguson married uh, Prince Andrew, who was described as a naval officer, we just were in... <laughs> we still haven't really recovered from that. And because we often had to share beds, we would do a game called navelling, where you'd be top to tail in a bed, and you'd just, just try and put your foot up your sister's vagina. And you'd just go... And if you did it, you'd go, navel, 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 navel. And, that and that's what people did before the internet. That was... That was a great day. <laughs> Well, it's it's really it's very enjoyable. I watched it. I watched it the what, first time. Have you I done it too? I know. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> anything. When you get to my age, anything. anything. It's, the, it's the hardest part of me, my foot. So that's fine. But uh, it's. <laughs> <laughs> but it's. Well, I hope you. I hope you. I think you will be successful with this thing. But you're gonna. I think the thing that I did that has made the last two work. Yes. Is just, you've got to be so persistent about it and just keep on going on, on and on about it, to the point that I'm sure 
the, I, I've lost thousands of uh, followers and fans and stuff from other stuff. And what I, proportion of people do you need to sleep with who are funding it? Because I was, I was, I'm, I'm averaging around about seventeen percent at the moment. Well, but like, kind my of. My wife wouldn't let me sleep with any of them. I was prepared to do that for a, a, one, a one pound. <laughs> but, uh, but I'd give you the pound. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I think, but it's interesting because you look at it and you think, oh, it's it's a huge amount of money. But then yeah. I think, but you look and but actually, it's sort of fifty thousand people giving. Thirty pounds. It, it gives you like about a million and a half pounds. So oh, you know, God, yeah. it's, well, we had a million not, viewers, so it's just exactly. kind of they all give us a quid. But like, kind of, I mean, the thing. I mean, aside from the fact that I would like to keep making the show, like, first of all, if it works in this country, which it hasn't done before, it would mean that no show needs to die. Like, as yeah. long as there's a fan base there who still want to make that show, even if a broadcaster takes it off, the fans can get together and go. No, we want to make. We want to continue making this. You know, the writer and the cast are still there. We want to get the band back together now. Yeah. Which you know, and I've got a list of things that I would bring back and and, and want to kickstart. So, you know, so, so that's the first thing about it. And secondly, again, if it works, that's just a template that anybody else can take and work with. And I will come around to give you all advice about the best way to do this. I can tell you all the mistakes that we've made. But but it's just a really interesting way around of doing it. That yeah. Instead of having to wait for someone to believe in you, you could just make a thing happen. And that's magic. That That's what you should be using the internet for yeah. rather than just dick pics. So I stopped doing dick pics. And I, <laughs> now I'm all about the altruism. But it's sort of, I mean, I, I got it with my ones, which were more modest than, your, yes. than yours. You know, people going, well, why don't you pay... Why don't you pay for yourself? I put my Kickstart things this year have been one hundred and seventy thousand pounds, and I'm not doing badly at my job. But if I paid one hundred and seventy thousand pounds to do some work that I'm not getting paid for, I'd be in quite a lot of trouble. Yes. So, so you know, it's, but it's, it is literally just the other way around. So I said yeah. to that, I said to somebody who said that, I said, but you go to see a millionaire comedian and they charge you £50 a ticket, you don't go, well, you've got loads of money, why are you charging £50 a ticket? Yeah. You would happily do that. So it's just getting the money in advance so the thing can be made. And if you don't want it to happen, it doesn't happen. Well, yeah, so they do, it does seem weird that you're just having to explain this really basic thing that humans have always done. It's like, it's not begging. It's like, if you want the thing, then pay us to make a thing. Yeah. Like, as you do with everything else. Like, it's, it's you know, it, 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 you know we're, not, we're not spending it on guns. It's kind of, it's, it's literally, if you want us to keep making the show that you like. And if you don't, that's great, because then we don't have to. And I can yeah. get on with Billenium, like, kind of... Yeah. Well, I felt like that. With as it occurs to me, I thought no, I'd never make a hundred thousand pounds for that, and that'd be fine. I could say I was going to do it, and then have to do it. Now I've got to do it, and it's <laughs> it's quite annoying. I have to say, it's, ta it's taking up a lot of my time. You're being but, very brave about it. Thank you. I, yeah. <laughs> so I've got some new emergency questions. Excellent. Um, I'm going to ask you this one that's uh, nearly new. Uh, it's one of the questions. Can you put your entire hand into your mouth, Catelyn? I can ask that. Can you put your entire hand into your mouth? I That's a so. weird question to ask. Why don't you ask me that? Um, yes, I can. Hang on. Oh, wow. In a way, I wish you hadn't been able to do it. That would have been an even weirder question. Just, <laughs> no, I can't, no. But I'd love to see something. That was amazing. Uh, Thank you. If you had to do a human centipede with two other people, if you, if you had to, but you could okay. choose okay. the two other people, and... You're in the middle. Uh, that was okay. That was going to be yeah. my question because because then okay. So so it's I need someone that I like pooing into my mouth. Yeah. And then someone I hate strapped exactly. to my arse. Exactly. You've okay. got you've got it. Everyone else hasn't really got this. Okay. Okay. So okay. Whose shit would be delicious? Is basically what you're asking me. Who yeah. do I think has a has a brilliant diet? Well, I mean, judging by the last series of Nigella, she's eating a very lovely, healthy diet now. Her it's... bottom would be a pleasure to have your nose rammed into. Yeah. I think. I think I would absolutely. Yeah. I, I can happily spend. And sew my lips to Nigella Nelson's anus. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that would be in front. <laughs> okay. And then and who would I shit into the mouth of? Yeah. Well, I guess 
I feel that he shits into my mouth culturally, so it would probably be Simon Cowell. Okay. And that is, that is a cheap gag, but I really mean it from the heart. He's the, he's the only person I regularly attack in print. Any, anyone else, no, but I just think with his seven pound Mr. Topper's haircut and the palpable air of only having seven CDs in his collection, two of which are the best of Robson and Jerome, is, and his, his wholesale stealing of the concept of music being on television and the idea that the, being the karaoke Sauron and us just being trapped in his <laughs> tiny record collection forever genuinely gives me boils in my soul. So yeah. yes, I, I'll shit into his mouth. Thank you. Thank would, you for the opportunity. That's all right. Thank you. I think he would probably die first as well. So for a while you'd be dragging his dead body around. But then you would die. But then Nigella Lawson, I think, would survive. I think she'll live forever. She's never yeah. going to die, is she, no. Nigella? That would be gutting. No. no. But it's all right for her. I mean, it's all right for the person at the front. Yeah, and, that was and a slight mildly inconvenient. Well, I guess. Well, I, I guess also she's the only one that can talk, and she's got yeah. a very soothing conversational tone, and she That's knows an true. enormous amount about literature, so she yeah. could just basically read aloud to us while we, That's while the rest true. of us just munch on shit. And, and that would annoy. That would annoy yeah. Simon Cowell, wouldn't it? Oh, he'd hate it. Yes. It. Don't talk about Dante. Go. <laughs> yes. But you have sort of cursed her to. Um, it's sort of like she is being punished, so you've sort of slightly punished her, but she would. Well, I mean, I you know, we all hurt the people we love, don't we? That's, <laughs> that, that's, that's what I've learned from the human centipede. That's fine. I once did a, a photo shoot with her where she had to dress up as me and I had to dress up as her. Oh, right. And I can tell any woman in the audience that's an incredibly depressing experience because Nigella was the most beautiful me I've ever seen in my life. Like, Nigella is me. She was wearing like Doc Martens, sort of like uh, tights, uh, little cut-off shorts and stuff. And, and she looked insanely hot. I looked at her and just went, God, Catelyn Moran could be beautiful were she constantly played by Nigella Lawson and then I just had to be this kind of dog in a dress Nigella Lawson and I was just very bad at being Nigella Lawson so don't if you get that opportunity don't That's, just be sewn to her instead in a human centipede that's definitely preferable uh, this is a question my wife suggested oh. um, if you dropped your uh, your phone down the portaloo on Glastonbury on the third day <gasps> Would you retrieve the toilet? Would you retrieve the phone, or would you leave oh. it in the? Now I think my wife well, imagined that Glastonbury toilets are, you know, you can just reach in and grab it, but actually yeah. it's you it's a pretty much gear. a sewer under there. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, but she was with someone who did this and who did retrieve their phone. Really? Yeah. And did it work? I, well, I don't. I didn't get that. I can't imagine it did. And even if it did, do you want to hold that to your face? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, my prosaic, my prosaic, non-funny forty-one-year-old answer is: it's all backed up to the cloud, and I have an insurance thing. Of course not. But yeah. but my my amusing anecdote answer would be uh, that one of the most noble things I've ever seen a celebrity do was we, we camp in the backstage Winnebago area at Glastonbury because we're wankers, and um, and one year in the absolute pissing rain, we noticed that four doors, four vans down from us, Mark Owen from Take That. Uh, was in the van and uh, with a couple of friends and his heavily pregnant wife and we sort of watched him coming and going and he just had a very pleasant demeanour anyway and then on the last day when you hire the Winnebago's you have to empty the toilet cassette out I don't know if you've sort of been in those caravans we have to sort of pull out a big kind of cassette of poo and go and empty it down a toilet somewhere else and on the last day of Glastonbury in the rain I watched Marco in from Take That just take the huge cassette of poo out of his caravan volunteering himself willingly and cheerfully and emptying out the collective shit of everyone who'd stayed in his van into the public toilets around the corner and I was like, you don't need to do that. You're, you're Mark Owen from Take That. Surely, surely with your incredible wealth and fame, you could just go like this and have someone come over and remove the poo for you. But 
he emptied his poo himself. So given that he's so at home with poo at Glastonbury, I'd probably ask Mark to maybe retrieve <laughs> the phone for me. Like kind of. I think that's how he got in to take that. He was prepared to do that for the other. <laughs> <laughs> so you can be in the van as yeah. long as you... Take we, we're all going to poo in a little bucket and you have to get rid of it at the end of the week. Are you happy with that, Mark? Yeah, yeah that'd be all right. Yeah, all right. I, bet, I, I would imagine Gary Barlow does extraordinary poos. Yeah. yeah. I used to play this game with my husband where we tried to imagine the kind of poos that celebrities would do. Like, he, he, was, he was convinced that um, Prince would go behind the sofa like a cat and kind of emit pellets. He'd kind of scratch. <laughs> And then just emit a lot of pellets. Yeah. Um, whereas I think we, we presumed from her vocal style that Heather Smalls from M people, it would just be like, bah! <laughs> bah! <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> I wanted to like, look, have you seen your YouGov, uh, your, the, the YouGov page of your fans? God, no, what? YouGov? Yeah. What are the. What is a YouGov Theresa page and it tells you what your fans are like. The, tip, the typical Cat and Moran fan and what they're different from... Oh. Oh, hold on. I reckon I can guess. I reckon they're mainly fruity women uh, who wear eyeliner, left-leaning, obsessed with Cumberbatch, and probably talk more about George Orwell than they've read of him, because <laughs> that's essentially... I can show you a picture, and it, a picture of exactly who they are. It's not so much fun for anyone else, but it's fun for you. Is it literally a picture of... What, how this is, is, this is I'm your bamboozled fan. by technology. Are you literally showing me everyone who likes me? They're readers of Cat and Moran... Uh, that's what they look like. They look like that. They're wow! It appears to be Janice from Friends. They've got <laughs> a kind of. Is. They've got an average picture of mine. Um, she. They like eating hummus, <laughs> which might. <laughs> that used to be what my fans like, but they've moved on to uh, my fans have moved on to uh, something else. They're quite left wing. They're not, not as left wing as my fans. They come from London, the North. All right, it's not Wales. a competition. They've got a monthly spare of a thousand pounds or more, as have my fans. Which spare? Is, yeah, they've got a thousand pounds spare. So, so they good could news. donate that to a Kickstarter. They maybe. could, yes. and they should. Kickstarter forward slash raised by wolves. Yeah, they like. Um, they like. I tell you, the, the food they like is hummus, chicken katsu curry second, and butternut squash risotto third. <laughs> so if you turn up your gigs with that stuff, they'll be. Their favourite sport is athletics, hundred metres, which seems very specific. I mean, if, if they are, if they have the same build and feeling towards sports as I do, yeah. they're not. You're not saying how long it takes them to do that. And I noticed that they've chosen the shortest run, which is definitely what I would do. Which I you can just amble along doing while smoking. Um, and in entertainment, so let's see if they like Benedict Cumberbatch. In entertainment, they like um, their favourite musical artist is John Cooper Clark, which is an odd choice. Really? Uh, and the flaming. I doubt this algorithm. Uh, and their favourite TV show is The Great British Bake Off. Not my fucking show. Uh, and no. my what? <laughs> How much do they actually like me? Uh, no. Well, they they like you on, they follow you on Twitter. That's a, that must Thanks. be a relief. Thanks, guys. <laughs> they like Bjork, Arcade Fire, and Joy Division's Facebook pages. That is fair enough, yeah. And lyricsmania.com is their favourite website. So uh, that's... Uh, that's <laughs> I would just like you to know about that. That's uh, amazingly specific. I love it. <laughs> I believe it works on an algorithm which shows what they like that other people don't like, so it's not actually what their favourite thing is, it's just the thing that makes them Mo different. Most different. Yeah, from what did things. your fan look like? Mine looks like Janice Mine looks friends, like Andrew your... Collins. Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it, and it's changed since I last... The thing is, that's the depressing thing about getting old. Is it uh, actually Andrew Collins? Uh, it might be. <laughs> it could well be my only... Uh, not sure he's that much of a fan of mine anymore. I quite, uh, but, like, uh, 
I quite like the idea of him setting up a proxy website that diverts everyone from YouGov to his own website to make you scared that he's your only fan. Yeah, oh, it's taken too long to load up. No. But it, look, he's got a little satchel like Andrew and looks a bit like... And he's, mid, he's a middle-aged man now. But look at my... Look, look at the rich diversity of bearded men that are like me. <laughs> Have you started to get to that thing now where you can't tell if someone young is good-looking or just that they're young? Like, to, to me now, anybody might... I refuse to answer this question on the grounds that it may incriminate me. <laughs> to me, anyone under the age of 35 yeah. just looks astonishingly beautiful. Like, they're lit from within, like, a stained-glass window in a medieval cathedral. It's just like... They, they don't know about knee hurt. They don't know about unspecified unspecif lung stab. They kind of... They've never done that thing where you kind of pleat the skin on your hand, your arm, and it doesn't go back. They haven't got a wattle yet. I started to get a wattle. Yeah. And I kind of... There's that really famous Nora Ephron uh, piece about I, I feel bad about my neck. And so I sort of stood there in the window, just sort of in the mirror, just looking at my wattle, thinking, do I feel bad about this? Maybe I should feel... Nora Ephron felt bad about this. I should feel bad about this. But I've decided I quite like it. Right. It's like, if you look at it, it's not unlike having a pair of knackers on your neck they just kind of you just sort of wobble them backwards and forwards yeah. I quite like it the nice thing about being a man is you can grow which a woman could do but not in the society we live in uh, it could grow a you can grow a beard to cover a lot of the I, I've just shaved off my beard today yeah. so You've, you've not got a wattle. Well, it's kind of... I've got a... There's some, there's some excess stuff under there that doesn't belong there. <laughs> Packing for the future. It is. Uh, so, uh, I would like to hear about how you nearly broke into Kate Moss's house. Ah, yes. Because <laughs> uh, I found... You say you're talking about that and then I haven't found what, when it happened. Oh, so right. I, okay. Yeah. Well, that'll be because it's on the Times website behind no, the paywall. <laughs> yes. This yeah. is a, I refuse to pay. There's such good, sweet stuff behind that paywall written by me. Uh, and no one knows about it, which is great because it means I get to tell the anecdotes twice. <laughs> um, I went to, uh, well, I, I, you may have guessed from the conversation, I, I quite like Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, and uh, I, I've had an embarrassing history with him because I got the advanced DVDs of Sherlock a couple of weeks before everyone else when I was still a TV critic. So on the night it first went out, I sort of popped onto Twitter and went, there's this new show called Sherlock coming. Ladies in particular, I think you're going to enjoy this show. Nine o'clock, I'll see you there. And then the show started, I had a couple of glasses of wine, and there was the first close-up and I was like, this really is quality drama as I stared at his beautiful face. <laughs> Um, and then there was the sort of second close-up ten minutes later, by which point I'd had another glass of wine. And I was like, look at that sweet, sweet face. Made of marmal, looks like a meerkat. These beautiful. And then by the time there was his third close-up half an hour in, I'd had most of the bottle of wine. And I just typed, oh my God, Benedict Cumberbatch. He could make my face look like a painter and decorator's radio. <laughs> Press send. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, the entire cast and crew of Sherlock had gathered at the writer Stephen Moffat's house, and Stephen follows me on Twitter, and at, at the beginning was kind of going, oh look, Catelyn's tweeting about Sherlock, she's saying very supportive things about it being a quality drama. <laughs> oh look, Benedict, that's quite funny, she's saying something about your face being beautiful and made of marble. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I didn't know about all this. So then a couple of weeks later, they sent me to interview Benedict Cumberbatch. And... <laughs> and, uh, and it was around about the time, because there's always a backlash against someone. So he'd been very successful. And then there was this backlash, a big backlash against him for being posh. Everyone was like, he's posh. Fuck him, he's posh. He's too posh. We hate him, he's posh. And, uh, and he'd sent me this email just sort of going, I feel really bad about this. And I was like, how dare they say things like this about you, sweet prince? I will defend you. <laughs> You're not that posh. Um, and 
I was supposed to be interviewing his parents' house in the countryside, so I've got the train, I'm in a taxi, and sort of all the time I'm texting him, he's going, I'm still worried about them calling me posh, and I'm like, fuck them, you're not posh. And the taxi pulls up outside his parents' house, and it's a fucking castle. It's like... <laughs> I kind of... It's got huge gates that you have to open, and as you walk up the beautiful, crunchy gravel driveway, there's a silver Jaguar, a London taxi cab, and a third sports car of a type that I don't recognise because I'm a woman, and it's just like, bloody hell... So I go to the front door, and because I'm meeting his parents and I'm essentially courting Benedict Cumberbatch now, um, I want to impress his parents. I've got a bunch of flowers for his mum and a bottle of wine for his dad. I'm kind of sort of knocking on the door. Hello, hello, but the house is so big, no one can hear me. Clearly all the maids are in the West Wing. So sort of through the letterbox again. Hello, I've, I've come to interview in the countryside. Hello, could you let me in? There's nothing. So I start walking around the house trying to find if there's another access point past the swimming pool, past this incredible sort of ballroom all the time. Going, bloody hell, this is an incredible house. And I just can't find any way in. And in the end, I have to go... I'm going to have to go into the village and ask a local peasant how you get into Castle Cumberbatch. This is, I cannot penetrate its solid walls. I need a trebuchet. Um, and so I, I walk towards the nearest hovel uh, in order to ask them how to get into the castle. And there's a man standing outside the hovel. And I realise that the man outside the hovel is Benedict Cumberbatch. At which point he goes, Catelyn, I've just been watching you for the last 20 minutes. Why have you been trying to break into Kate Moss's house? <laughs> She lives next door. So unfortunately, we did not wed. Uh, that was it. It went quite badly after that. Um, <laughs> well, it's good. I'm just, I'm just, you know, he, he, he had the offer, didn't he? He could have taken up. Yeah. So it was. That's. <laughs> I think I'd sold myself very well as a bride at that point. You know? I'd shown that I wasn't the kind of person who could break into a castle. That's surely that's an attribute you want in a bride. Um, and but it's, uh, do you find that being successful um, as you are has that had an effect on the way people perceive you? Because it's sort of like the, it's interesting. I think as people come through, like the, the, you're super cool, you break through, and then then you have a backlash. Yeah, then you, well, then you become successful, yeah. and then people and I think especially when you're writing about stuff like feminism, uh, that, that people are very competitive about being the best feminist. About the be being the best at yes. being equal to everyone. Not totally, but, yeah, but being women, you can take them down quite easily. Yeah. It's just a yeah. simple fight or with hair pulling. Um, well, I guess, I don't know, I'm sort of, I'm a lover, not a fighter. So yeah. kind of like sort of, you know, whenever there was a scuffle like that, I just wanted to make jokes about it. Like kind of, that's the great thing about not being an academic feminist, you know, kind of ultimately, as much as I believe in feminism and equality and all these things, if it, if, you know, if it was funnier to make a joke saying that I didn't believe in it, I would. Yeah. That's kind of, you know, I, you know I'm comedy's, you know, comedy is my mistress. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I think the main thing has been coming from, I mean, although it's hard to believe given that I essentially have a Victoria Corrin's voice, I do come from, Wolverhampton and a working class background and the main thing that you see people saying is kind of like surely you're now middle class like kind of you can't say you're working class anymore you must be middle class you have a silly voice and you live in a big house and I, I hate the logic of that because it means that that if as soon as you're as soon as a working class person becomes successful and earns any money they get co-opted and stolen by the middle classes yeah. which means that the only sort of defining appellations that you can put on the working classes is, is that they're non-successful and don't have a voice and I don't believe that and I also believe that culturally there are differences between the middle classes and the working classes as soon as anyone working class makes money they employ everyone they know you know they always pay the bill for everyone because they know what it's like to sit around a dinner table and know that you you know you might not be able to pay the bill you know they share things they kind of it was interesting recently i was finding 
that uh, Radiohead and Kasabian are exactly the same music. Right. So Kasabian are a sort of working class band from Leicester, Radiohead a middle class band from, from Oxford. I love both intensely and dearly, but this seemed to absolutely typify the difference between the working classes and the middle classes. That, you know, uh, Radiohead into sort of prog rock and fortet and, and all the same stuff and so are Kasabian. But whereas Radiohead kind of make these impenetrable things and kind of have this kind of, you know, we're sort of, you know, sort of don't really talk to the audience and they're kind of like, we, we build an impressive thing that's to scare you and to make you cry whereas Kasabian take exactly the same music and they're like <laughs> and there was a quote from Serge from Kasabian who'd been to see Radiohead and he was just like there were no birds on bloke's shoulders that's a shit gig you know kind of I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be in a band where birds didn't get on bloke's shoulders and I was like that's exactly it they want to share it and make it joyful kind of you know they're not because it's the difference between the physical spaces you live in if you're working class you, sure. you have a space straight out on there's no garden you just walk straight out on the street and you share your music with everyone you can hear everybody you all sort of share whatever resources you've got yeah. whereas if you're middle class you have a fence and a garden and you curate your house and try and make it impressive and it's not like one is different you know any worse or better than the other yeah. but one is less represented than the other and I know which one I prefer yeah do you find well like at the moment with the the Brexit Brexit and Ugh. Remain stuff going on, um, <laughs> and like there's a lot, of, but there's a lot, like there's a lot of there's a, there's this feeling that well the Gary Lineker thing is sort mm. of like that he's he's being anti working class by saying that he's you know doesn't want to have yes. refugees being kept out of the country yeah and so there's this idea now that working class means you know mildly mildly racist reactionary yeah. not empathizing with people not being supportive and that's not my and and so and then if you're anti that you're being anti working yes. class but it's not my it's not my experience of my grandparents grew up in middlesbrough and, yeah. and exactly it was it was all everyone helping each other living in quite an unpleasant place as wolverhampton is yes uh, and, <laughs> and good luck with your podcast in wolverhampton yes that's, <laughs> i think yeah. middlesbrough is worse than wolverhampton though to be fair we can find uh, about ourselves <laughs> yeah. but it's you know but i uh, but the empathy was the was well, the working classes die working unless class they stick together yeah. because they have to because there's exactly. not that much outside support. And, you know, you know, without being too kind of, you know, smoking of the marijuana and becoming paranoid conspiracy theory about this, like, who does it benefit for the, for, for the story to be now that the working classes are ignorant, yeah. that, you know, that they, that they are non-supportive, that they turn, turn on against each other? You are dehumanising the working classes when you start telling these kind of stories about the working classes. Yeah. And I think it's very noticeable because it's a trope that is repeated again and again through history. If you have a demonised underclass that is starting to get restless which is what's been happening with the under white underclass in this country then you know, they're either going to rebel upwards and have some kind of revolution against the people who've got the money and the power so what you have to do is make a subclass to the underclass which in this yeah. case is refugees and people of color um, and and direct their anger downwards then that's just a simple direction of energy like that yeah. that's 101 politics that's 101 Machiavelli that's 101 fascism that's what you do yeah. you don't want people kicking up you want them kicking down and you have to create a subclass and that is the narrative that is that is unfolding at the moment but my husband's theory on brexit is that it wasn't that popular and people just voted for it because the word sounded like breakfast and that's and that's a word we love and yeah. that notice obviously it's full brexit now i think continues this theme that that is we just liked that word and i think also the remain uh, camps. I think we again. It's about so much of it's about words and stuff. Like remain is like you remain there. Remainders yeah. like on remains. Like I mean, it sounds like skeletons and stuff. Yeah. Whereas if it had been the stay campaign, yeah. stay is a beautiful word. When someone says stay, will you stay the night? Stay with yeah. me. You know, that's, that's seventeen could have sung the. Exactly. Shakespeare's sister could have been back. Like kind of you've, <laughs> immediately here in yeah. one minute, we've already got a better campaign that was fought by remain. Yeah. This is <laughs> this is already better. And you can't make it stomach. St 
stay out moan. You can't Ramonas, put moan in there. Ramonas, I know. I'm, I'm loving this whole thing of like, kind of like, the, the, the having had this cataclysmic thing happen, we're now shits for going, this is shit and this is going to be a terrible thing. Like, you're a Ramona if you're not 100% behind this. Like, yeah. why would I be behind this? Why am I going to make your shit idea work? I just want to sit back and watch the whole thing fucking collapse. I'm going to do absolutely nothing. Your weird idea of turning Britain into a tea shop where we're going to like, it, all our exports are going to be jam and biscuits and tea. People don't drink tea anywhere else in the world. Have you have you been on holiday anywhere else in the world? They, they don't do tea. Like, you know, and just, we don't well, grow tea well, in yes. the UK. That's yes. Right. And most people don't like jam. If you talk to younger people now, like in our day, what better treat was there than some jam? Yeah, like 90% oh, yeah. of the good stuff that happened in our lives from our generation was jam. Yeah. You give jam to a nine-year-old now and they will say to you, as my daughter did at a birthday party when I'd made jam tarts, but why would people eat jam when there's Nutella? <laughs> as far as she's concerned, if you were going to make a jam-like thing with a jam-like consistency, why would you, if you, why would you make it out of strawberries or black currants <laughs> when you could make it out of chocolate instead? Yeah. And she has an enormously valid point. Yeah. Yeah, Nutella's not made in the UK. I said, I'm going to get... Uh, Ali's going to ask a question now. This is, uh, this is my... Uh, He's from the 19th century, so I have no control over what he will say. I apologise. <laughs> Hello, Kathleen. Um, aren't men much better than women, though? That's the, oh, that's, that's the thing. Oh, Ali, that's very rude. But he, he has a point. Uh, don't he? Wait, I'm, I'm... Isn't that the case tr- that men are... Well, better than women well one of the great things about women is we, we do know how to condition our hair which is yeah. something that Ali has clearly not done the last time I saw <laughs> he has hair as dry as oh god what's her name oh. on the Great British Bake Off who's the one on Great British Bake Off who's got really dry hair that woman is she Anne I've been Jane yeah I knew the women would know. Like, kind of any woman I know who's watching it's just going, just condition it. Just well, put a leaving condition. It's so well dumb. done, Ali. You've got them turning against each other. That is well done. <laughs> Your work here is done. I, I'm a, I believe women should be treated as if they're equal. That is what I believe. So that is... I'm very different than... Very different. Yeah. We haven't got too long with you. So um, I, well, I'll ask you a couple more emergency questions. Have you ever seen The Ghost? Yes. Yes, I knew you would have yes. done. My, when my granddad died, I shared the room with my five siblings. We had two bunk beds and a mattress on the floor. And on the night that he died, the uh, cord from the light started swinging very slightly like this. And we all screamed and went, that must be granddad. <laughs> Not taking into consideration that it was the middle of January and all the windows were open. <laughs> and that a swinging light switch would be a common thing to see. It was yeah. absolutely, we believed that that was a ghost. Still right. now, we believe the granddad spirit Could was be. in that light cord. Could be. That's the kind of thing he would do, I reckon. I know. Came, if he came back. He's a gentle ghost. He was. Yeah. Nice. But you chose your name through numerology, right? Yes, so you, that is your called, real name was Catherine. Yes. And you decided that wasn't going to get you anywhere. Yeah. I mean, well, it's worked, hasn't it? Well, Arguably. this is the thing. I know. Maybe those Egyptians were onto something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just thought Catherine was quite a boring name. And uh, so I read a Jilly Cooper book where there was a character called 
the thing is you should pronounce my name Caitlin like kind of but when you choose a name when you're 13 from a book and you don't really go out much uh, you will pick a name and completely mispronounce it for the next 30 years of your life and make people feel really awkward when you say it's Caitlin it shouldn't be I've got no reason to say to them this is called you should call me Caitlin yeah. it is Caitlin um, but yeah no I picked it out of a book and then I checked it against numerology but I was I think I'm watching my daughters go through the same phase now when you get into your teenage years you really get into the supernatural like I can remember the, the supernatural section of the library it was like because you're like I know the grown ups know stuff and they're keeping it from me and then you find the shelf of books about UFOs and the Pendle ghosts and you're like that's where the secret stuff was I knew I knew that the grown ups knew about this stuff yeah. so I was obsessed with the supernatural as my daughter is now and the, the, the height of my insanity and believing in the supernatural was I became convinced I was psychic and when the band Squeeze toured Wolverhampton and played at the Civic Hall in 1989 I was convinced that if I lay in bed long enough looking at a picture of lead singer Glenn Tilbrook who my believed would be the most psychically receptive and I kept looking at a picture of his face and repeating my phone number over and over again 01902 337 that he would in his dressing room go I don't know why but I feel like I've got to call this number and then would call my number and go do you want to be on the guest list for tonight? <laughs> and then I would go, yes, that has worked really effectively. And as you may imagine, that did not happen. But I was, I was genuinely convinced that he would ring. And now you've given his, your number out on this podcast. He might, he might listen to this and then he might ring you. Finally. Yeah. It'd be like ghosts. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, was, I was very much... I mean, I still sort of am. I'm quite logical but yeah. and rational and don't believe any of this stuff. But in my teenage years, I was obsessed with... That's why all the things I'm interested in, like Jesus, who I'm interested in as an, in a non-religious way, and um, Nostradamus and Rasputin. I mean, they all have beards. That's the, that's the other so, thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but they all, I love that kind of supernatural element of all their lives. Obviously, you know, Jesus was pretty magic when he had some... Came back. He was yeah. a ghost, wasn't he? Well, I guess, the, I mean, superheroes weren't around so much at that point, so the fact no. that you're kind of like slightly magic men yeah. who are more accessible than Batman, kind of, that was what spoke to you. I like that. I never understood why Jesus' disciples weren't, were so suspicious of him and didn't back him up all the time, right? Because, like, they must have known he was the son of God and yeah. they'd seen him do all the miracles and stuff. And then still Peter's going, no, I don't, well, the I don't is... know him. And Dom was going, yeah, I don't reckon it's you. Why don't you reckon it's me? You remember when I walked on water and I brought Lazarus back to life? Nah. You remember that I'm the son of God? Yeah, nah. If, if Thomas can't believe in Jesus, how the fuck am I meant to believe in Jesus? I, would pres I presumed it must be because all the disciples come from the Midlands because they doubt everything. Like, you see anything amazing happening, you go, nah, I don't reckon. No, that, that's the default Midlands. Would they follow him around for though? Anyway, we'll follow him around, but we don't. But by being constantly sarcastic and dolorous, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I don't really know that much about Jesus. I, all, all, everything I know is entirely based on the score from Jesus Christ Superstar. So right. well, that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Really, he did good some singing. Did some good singing. What was it like being... I mean, why were you homeschooled? Was that a choice of your, your, you or your parents? Or Well, they were hippies and they danced yeah. us if we wanted to leave school a couple of times. And we were sort of... Because we were hippie children, we were kind of going to school in sort of rainbow crouchade ponches and gold Wellington boots whilst everybody else was wearing neon pop socks and being into Duran Duran. So we, we were bullied quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> and our parents asked us if we wanted to leave school and we were like, that would be great. And there's two ways that you can homeschool. Like, half the people who homeschool do it because they think that you'll get a better education at home. And, like, you know, if you just go for a walk with your parents, you will be through the woods, you'll be learning about geology and geography and kind of, you know, nature and all this kind of stuff. And it would actually be a better way to educate children. That would be a better way to educate people. 
And then there's the second sort, uh, which is my parents, who just really couldn't be bothered to get us up every morning and to find clean socks and pants. And so, as a consequence, they did nothing at all. And we would wake up every day and we would watch classic MGM musicals whilst eating a huge amount of cheese. Um, we invented the cheese lollipop, which is a fist-sized lump of cheese on a fork, um, which if you're bored enough, you can lick. You can lick cheese and it will gradually... Have you ever licked cheese for I a very long time? I haven't licked cheese for that long, so uh, no. yeah, it, I know. I find it too delicious to it, Lick. Well, if you had you been as bored as us, yeah. um, you will realise that it goes through a very odd journey. Um, as you lick it, the sort of the more liquid elements of it kind of like get licked away, and you're left with kind of little lumps of more solid cheese and salt, which you can then crunch on as individual delicious nuggets before right. going back and penetrating the rest of the more liquid cheese. And that's but that will be over three or four hours. You can't. Yeah, that won't happen straight away. You have to be committed. To yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing. I mean, I'll, we'll, we'll, I'll let you go very soon. But it's amazing that you went from that, and then you, what, you obviously had this observer success, and then you were kind of straight onto TV. You did Naked City, in which I was appalling. <laughs> yes, I was. I was the world's worst. I was given a TV show at the age of eighteen, and there's a reason why not many people say that sentence, and it's because it's a terrible idea to give an eighteen-year-old a TV show. I was just. I had nothing to say. What do you? Yeah. What have you got to say when you're eighteen? I literally didn't know, and I would be going around the world interviewing all these pop stars, and I didn't have any clue who they were because at the point where I became a music journalist when I was 16 I had 12 CDs from the local library I was blagging my way through the whole thing um, so I went to interview Iggy Pop had no idea who he was um, and just talked to him about his hair for half an hour but the thing is that because everybody else that interviews Iggy Pop is usually kind of a boy fan who's kind of like oh my god oh my god tell me all about the Stooges Iggy was thrilled that I wasn't asking him about self-mutilation of the Stooges and we talked about hair for half an hour yeah. and his secret then which is the bigger thing now is that he was he said I always put the conditioner on first oh. then you shampoo don't think that would work. <laughs> Wiggy pop. <laughs> I just say, because I, I, me and Stu interviewed uh, Moon Unit Zappa mm. in, uh, in Canada in the late 90s. And I don't really know anything about Frank Zappa. I didn't even know he was dead, to be honest. So I was, <laughs> she was talking about, she was talking about, and I was going, your dad sounds horrible. And she, but she really liked it. Because obviously everyone else, it's like, well, everyone else is just like, you know, and, 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 yeah. and, and looking back at it, I now realise she quite fancied me. It's terrible when you go back and look at it. Oh. She came up to me on the last day, said, write this down. I said, and it was her phone number. And I said, and I was too stupid to understand. What did that you was... think? <laughs> what, what did, what? I don't what, know, she was lovely as well. What would you think she was giving you a phone number for? Just, because I was, I would just assume she couldn't be interested in me, so that she was just being nice. Surely you'd been but through the human the ritual. But now she definitely fancied me. Really? What, yeah. is she all like this? Yeah, because she's all like, I'm laughing at how funny I am and cheeky I'm being. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, pretty much the story of my life. I'd like to be able to go back and have another crack, really. At, not just at Mune Unit Zappa, but that would be a start. It's called Mune Unit. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Going, oh, when you're having sex, with like, oh, Moon Unit. Oh. You don't, she wouldn't have liked that. But then, but then when you were younger, you don't realise. I had, I had a similar thing with Jeff Buckley. I, I'd interviewed oh. Jeff Buckley a couple of times. I got on enormously well with him. He was just really funny, kind of, you know, you drowned saint-like man yeah. now. But he was just incredibly funny and really silly. And then one night, he just rang me and said, I'm in town, I'm at my hotel, do you want to come over? And I just put on a toweling robe, and I was, <laughs> I was watching The Crystal Maze. And I was just sort of... And I'd skinned up a joint, and I was sort of halfway through it. And I was like, man, there'll be plenty of time to fuck Jeff Buckley. That's fine. <laughs> And then he drowned in the Mississippi, yeah. but a month later. And it was just like, no. I mean, then the moral of that story is always go and have sex yeah, with Jeff Buckley. Because if you'd, if you'd had sex with him, he probably wouldn't have drowned because exactly. his future is sliding doors, isn't it? That's, uh, exactly. The sliding. Yes, sliding, sliding doors. Yeah. yeah, he would have slid through my doors. He would have drowned in another way entirely. The best. <laughs> 
in if my I, love, if I in got my love. With, if I got off with Moon Unit Zapper, the best thing about it would have been it would really have annoyed Stu. <laughs> 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 would have been. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, look, I, I know you've got something else to do. So uh, thank you very much for coming in. Please support um, uh, your the well, well, it's Raised by Wolves. Raised by Wolves. If you go on Kickstarter yeah. and search for Raised by Wolves, uh, and uh, just put a fiver in. If like it doesn't take that yeah. many people to get, it takes quite a lot, and it gets three hundred It's but an extraordinary amount of money. But if you like it, then do it. If you don't, then that's absolutely fine. I'm starting to go off it, to be honest. So, <laughs> but I mean, if you do want some more, we will make some more. Everyone's there and ready to go. So, and you get great rewards. You get cameos on the show. You know, you can get, uh, you can have a personalised message from the cast that you can play at a wedding or a birthday party. Like, kind of, it, it, we've tried to come up with genuinely good stuff. It's a, and it's a really excellent show. I kind of, it was really lovely to watch some more of it today because it was, uh, it's, it's really the, the relationships between all the characters are great. So I hope you do get to do some more. Thank you. If Tom. not, I look forward to the Bill Murray. Uh, Millennium, it's happening. And I'm sure there'll be much more to come anyway. But ladies and gentlemen, give a massive round of applause, Callum Moran. <laughs> you. Listening to Rich Daring's That's the Square Theatre podcast with me, Rich Daring, and my guest, Catelyn Moran. The music is by Pets. Thank you to everyone at Go Fast and Strike. Thanks to everyone at the Left Square Theatre. Thanks to everyone at British Comedy Guide. Thanks to everyone at iTunes. Thank you to my producer, Ben Walker, and he'd never record. He's into he's doing proper jobs. He won't come in and record these credits. He thinks he's too big for them. So thank you to George, whose arm is getting better. Uh, it's very nice to have him doing this. Uh, this is the Sky Potato Fuzz and GoFasterStrike.com production. If you enjoy these, head to GoFasterStrike.com and you can pick up uh, DVDs. My new DVD, Happy Now, might even be out by the time this goes out. Uh, oh, no, it probably won't. And um, uh, but there's lots of other DVDs there. Or go to richherring.com slash gigs and you can see if my show, The Best, is coming near to you. Buy tickets for that. That's mainly in 2017. Thanks for listening. Bye.